This is C-SPAN's The Weekly. I'm Steve Scully in Washington, and joining us in our studios is John Harris, the founding editor of Politico. In the last couple of weeks, two candidates have entered the race, former Governor Deval Patrick and Michael Bloomberg. Three have dropped out, including Senator Kamala Harris this past week. Thanks very much for being with us. Good to be with you, Steve. Let's talk about Michael Bloomberg and a piece that you wrote for Politico. Here's why Bloomberg insists he is not crazy. What's his message? What is his path? His message is that the most important thing that unifies Democrats, divided on a lot of ways, uh, in a lot of ways, is the intense desire to beat President Trump uh, a year from now, and that uh, the current field is at risk of not being able to do that for a variety of reasons. That's why there's a window. He decided six months or so ago that he was not going to run for president, even though it's something he's long wanted to do. His team says he's reassessed that in recent weeks because he's seen polling that suggests Democrats might lose to to President Trump. He thinks he can stop that. That's his reason. His path is a path that's never been walked by a successful nominee before, which is to skip the early states, come in on Super Tuesday. The engine for doing this is hundreds, potentially, uh, by the end of this, hundreds of millions of dollars, already tens and tens of millions of dollars of television ads introducing him nationally. Um, And we'll see if that can work. And we've seen these ads over the last uh, week and a half or two weeks. Here it is. He could have just been the middle-class kid who made good, but Mike Bloomberg became the guy who did good. After building a business that created thousands of jobs, he took charge of a city still reeling from 9-11. A three-term mayor who helped bring it back from the ashes, bringing jobs and thousands of affordable housing units with it. After witnessing the terrible toll of gun violence, he helped create a movement to protect families across America and stood up to the coal lobby in this administration to protect this planet from climate change. And now he's taking on him to rebuild a country and restore faith in the dream that defines us, where the wealthy will pay more in taxes and the middle class get their fair share. Everyone without health insurance can get it, and everyone who likes theirs keep it. And where jobs won't just help you get by, but get ahead. And on all those things, Mike Bloomberg intends to make good. Jobs creator, leader, problem solver. Mike Bloomberg for president. I'm Mike Bloomberg, and I approve this message. John Harris, let's break down this ad. In the very beginning, middle-class kid. Here's somebody now worth upwards of $50 billion, but he's emphasizing that point. Look, under normal times, uh, people don't necessarily root for the billionaire. In this moment, in this Democratic Party, where there's intense opposition uh, to, uh, to the wealthy, feeling that they're getting unfair advantages, he's got to introduce himself by saying, I'm defined not by my wealth, but by my life story, how I achieved that wealth, and what I did with it once I had it. So that ad, part bio, part attack, and part messaging. And the messaging part with regard to health care. Again, a indirect attack at Elizabeth Warren saying, if you like your health care, you can keep it. There is a belief that Bloomberg's team has. And Steve, it's really echoed by lots and lots of uh, Democratic operatives and strategists uh, who, who live uh, and work here in Washington around us, and we talk to them frequently, that say the Democratic Party has potentially made a fatal mistake by in the nominating contest getting in a competition uh, in which no candidate wanted to leave a flank on his or her left. And so they backed Medicare for all, 
which uh, is mandatory federal insurance. I mean, it would be a radical overhaul of the nation's health care system. And these people think that that's a mistake, that that's a popular position in the nominating contest, but an untenable position in the general election, and it creates a huge vulnerability. And so that's what uh, Mayor Bloomberg, I think, sincerely believes that. That's the the essence of his message. By the way, it's a very similar line to Mayor Pete, right? Medicare for, for all who want it. Uh, and we've already seen that from the, the Warren campaign, backpedaling a little bit on the Medicare for all plan. I think if we could put them on truth serum, and, and Steve, that's something I always like to do, is imagine <laughs> what they would say if they had to tell the truth. I think Senator Warren and her team would say, you know, we got uh, we got stampeded into that position. We made a strategic calculation that we were not going to let, in particular, Bernie Sanders be to our left on this position. So we backed Medicare for all, and we recognized the political vulnerability of that position. And I think they would also say we recognize the strategic vulnerability of that position, or the, rather the substantive vulnerability of that position. It's an expensive, complicated plan. What's more, it's not really the reason that uh, Elizabeth Warren is running for president. She's running for president for a lot of very sincere reasons. She believes corporate power is too great. Uh, the Bloombergs of the world are doing too well, and the rest, uh, the vast majority of people aren't uh, being treated fairly. Uh, that's what animates her. If you listen to her stump speech, uh, Medicare for All is not a major portion of it. It did define her campaign from the fall, basically till now, and it's come at a cost. By the way, that uh, you know we've seen her um, uh, plateau or drop in the polls. I think that to me is one of the big dramas ahead over the next uh, uh, couple of months to see if she can recover her momentum that was so strong for most of 2019 but really went flat um, uh, in the last couple of months. There are a couple of points in your piece, again, available at politico.com, and I want to share it with our listeners. You write, it cannot be emphasized enough just how unusual the Bloomberg strategy is. Well, sure, because these early states, Iowa, New Hampshire, been there for several generations now. Uh, More recently, uh, the, the other two important early states, South Carolina and Nevada, They've had a historic role of narrowing the field and uh, um, giving campaigns that do well there momentum to take it national. Nobody has ever successfully said, skip the early states. I'm going to go national on my own right at the beginning, and I'm going to do it powered by money. Um, it, It is unprecedented. You can see the logic of how it would work. The thing that we made, uh, the point that we made, uh, uh, I was joined by my colleagues uh, uh, Sally Goldenberg and Mark Caputo, is that it requires lots of things to happen that are beyond Bloomberg's direct control. They're not wildly impossible to imagine. They're fundamentally beyond his control. The most important is that out of those first four states, the race is muddled, uh, that there's there's no one that really has is coming out with a, uh, a lot of momentum. There's nobody that's uh, established his or her position as a sort of unassailable frontrunner. And we're seeing that in Iowa with uh, former Vice President Joe Biden wrapping up an eight-day tour through rural parts of Iowa. A lot of small stops, a lot of events to do two things. First of all, to show his enthusiasm and energy, but also to try to shore up his support to make sure he comes in first, second, or third in Iowa. Yeah, because he would really look weak and and, uh, potentially uh, be bleeding uh, if he were just not to register in Iowa. Uh, I think his campaign has, based on their polling, um, sort of reckoned with uh, for for several months now the like uh, the log odds that they have of winning Iowa. 
but to just write Iowa off and say, I don't care, and maybe I don't even care about North Carolina, I'll see you in South Carolina, where I've got this strong African-American support, that's a very risky strategy, and they're, they're trying not to do that if, if they can. So do you buy the argument from David Yepsen, longtime political journalist, who said that there are basically only three tickets from Iowa? What are those three tickets? In other words, you've got to be in the top three or you're out of the race. Certainly David is right uh, about that historically. The question is, is this a year that's unusual enough uh, for a variety of reasons? We live in such a disruptive age of politics that that's no longer true. Bloomberg's made a pretty big bet uh, uh, as I say, he's prepared to spend hundreds of millions of dollars, potentially. Just but that's not that. true. Just to underscore that amount of money, hundreds of millions, not not even 10 or 20 million. He's already spent more than $50 million in the last couple of weeks. That's right. Uh, and, you know, that might be a lot of money for you or me, Steve. <laughs> for him, it's rather, uh, it, it's a, a percentage-wise, maybe not that uh, big a bet uh, when you've got to start with a reported $54 billion. But um, it, it's an enormous sum. And he's got to hope that, uh, one, the money's not wasted, uh, and, two, that there's not a backlash to it. The candidates in the field, including especially Senator Warren, are trying to uh, instill that backlash. And now, who does he think he is coming in late, skipping these early states? We've been at this working hard, meeting voters, sharpening our message for a year. And this guy, because he's a billionaire, thinks he can waltz in. Um, so it's a, it's a very – it's an interesting debate. One of his first events uh, in Norfolk, Virginia, not in one of the early primary caucus states, but a state that will hold a primary in March with an eye on Super Tuesday, another March contest. This is what he said. Now, you may ask, why am I kicking my campaign off right here in Norfolk? And it is because southeastern Virginia proves that with the right candidate, we can turn areas from red to blue. And we need to do that all across this country. And today I'm glad to announce that I am running for president to defeat Donald Trump and to unite and rebuild America. That from the former three-term mayor of New York City and billionaire Michael Bloomberg. Your thoughts? Well, Virginia's a state, uh, uh, actually, I think that we both know well, right? You're, you're, uh, we both live there. Both live there. Uh, and I spent uh, four years as a Virginia political reporter back uh, good long time ago now when I was at the Washington Post. The point he is making, though, is absolutely right. Uh, this used to be a state that did not compete for uh, Democrats, could not compete in at the presidential level. Lyndon Johnson was the last Democrat to win, and then it was uh, won by Republicans all the way through 2008 and Barack Obama. Now it's a, uh, it's a state that leans pretty solidly Democratic in presidential years. Uh, he is right about that, that the, that achievement happened, well, for two reasons. One, the state became much more demographically diverse. And the other is that Democrats found a winning message that could take, uh, in particular, suburban voters in northern Virginia and down in Hampton Roads, where, where the mayor kicked off his campaign, Norfolk, Virginia Beach, Portsmouth, and turn those into Democratic voters. And I'm reminded that Barack Obama's final campaign event in 2008 was in Manassas, Virginia, so one of those Washington, D.C. suburbs that was key to the Obama-Biden victory in 2008. That's right. And I think Democrats now feel that um, uh, they shouldn't have to spend uh, a lot of uh, money, resources, time in Virginia. Or if they do, that's that's uh, uh, that's a real problem because they should be able to bank that state early. Uh, I still regard it as a swing state. I think the right Republican would be competitive in that state. Uh, but it is notable that uh, uh, all the statewide offices are held by Democrats. And since Obama, uh, the states voted Democratic in the presidential election uh, 
uh, every time. It's why politics for me is fun to cover. Nothing stands still. And things that you think are, are just fundamental truths uh, change over time. The idea that Ohio is, uh, is not a swing state, um, you know, that's really notable. We are talking with John Harris. He is the founding editor of Politico. And your operation now includes how many employees? Because you're growing. Well, we've been growing and we've been uh, doing well. Uh, we've got uh, both a U.S. operation that's headquartered uh, here in Washington, but has uh, people around in several states. Uh, and we also have a joint venture uh, uh, in Europe that we do with a European media partner, Politico.eu. And uh, uh, that's now 150 people or so. Add it all up, we're about 750. And yet you still write. Well, that's what I'm trying to do. The place got big enough uh, and runs well enough that I kind of felt it's time for me to give up uh, uh, my management. Did it for a dozen plus years, and it was hard work and fun work. But I kept looking out at the newsroom, and it seemed like people were having more fun than I was reporting the story. So the place is in very good hands. We're very proud of what we built. We're very proud that we've been able to show that you can have uh, uh, quality journalism funded by a robust, sustainable business model. So I think that's been a big achievement over the, the last decade or so. So let's go back to your piece about Michael Bloomberg. And as you look at the pool of Democratic voters, for argument's sake, let's talk about the Biden voter and the Pete Buttigieg voter, because mm-hmm. that's clearly where I think Michael Bloomberg is looking at how he's going to try to pull away. So you asked this question. Is it really so clear that former Vice President Biden is spiraling downward? Well, it's not clear. Um, you know, the, there's been a kind of static in the insider conversation about former Vice President Biden for months now. Um, is he too old? Is he too inarticulate? Uh, is he a relic of an earlier time? Uh, can he withstand debate performances that I think at best have been so-so? Um, uh, you know, bang, bang, bang of negative story. And you look around and you see at the national polls, he's still up there at the top. Uh, so I, I think the uh, uh, it's not clear that uh, uh, a fundamental assumption of the Bloomberg team is that uh, former Vice President Biden is uh, irrecoverably weak. He's not going to be the nominee, and let's just admit that. Uh, I think that's a big assumption that uh, you'd be hard-pressed to support. You might believe it, but you couldn't prove it based on, on current evidence. I came across something interesting, actually, at Politico.com, that in December of 1975, Jimmy Carter was 10th in the polling in the Iowa caucuses. Of course, he ended up coming in second, none of the above, won the Iowa caucuses in 1976. And I mention that because right now, Pete Buttigieg is leading in the polls in Iowa and New Hampshire. You know, that's a nice fact. I didn't realize that Jimmy Carter didn't actually win, uh, that uh, none of the above won. But of course, that was when... um Jimmy Carter's uh, uh, campaign and the fact that he did vault uh, out of a strong performance in Iowa, that's what made the Iowa caucuses. So they've been a big deal now for, what, that's 40-plus uh, years. Um, and, and that's why David Yepsen, as you pointed out, said, look, you've got there's only three tickets out of Iowa. Um, you know, I think the people are starting to question Iowa uh, and New Hampshire and their preeminence. Uh, even more than they, there's been, this is an argument that's been going on for years. Do these small states, uh, disproportionately white, rural, do they have too much influence in the process? So let's take the Carter strategy and look at Pete Buttigieg. Hypothetically, if he wins Iowa 
and maybe wins New Hampshire or comes in a strong second, does he then have the organization to sustain a Super Tuesday primary contest? Can he do well among black voters, which continues to be a source of contention in Democratic circles? Where do you see his campaign going after these two states? Well, it's a really interesting uh, comparison to look at uh, 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 Buttigieg and Biden, uh, because uh, excuse me, and uh, and Bloomberg. Because Bloomberg's big bet is that the early states don't matter. Mayor Pete's big bet is that they do. Um, uh, uh, Bloomberg's big bet, this is years totally different. Mayor Pete's bet is actually it's the same. And so what he would need is uh, um, a big boost. Uh, he's done well in fundraising so far. But he would need to have another big boost of fundraising. And he'd need to build a national campaign, something he doesn't have now. And he would need to hope uh, that... Uh, strength of victory of early victories would in fact bring around african-american voters who have been so slow to embrace him the idea is that victory produces victory uh nobody's going to win the democratic nomination uh, without strong support among uh, african-americans in particular uh, uh sort of working class union voters uh, and uh, and women uh, there's just no path and i would think african-americans are the first most important part of that coalition Michael Bloomberg is very smart, he is very wealthy, but he is not a charismatic candidate. How does he break through on that front? Well, it is really a case of uh, of telling rather than showing, right? In journalism, they always tell us, show, don't tell. Uh, and I think in Bloomberg's case, he's going to have to uh, have uh, uh, a really expert political team putting on uh, you know polished commercials of the sort that you played uh, uh, and telling that life story. There's no question he's not a, a, a an electrifying presence on stage. Nobody's going to uh, confuse him with Barack Obama. Uh, or he's not going to send a chill up the uh, up the leg. Uh, that famous phrase about uh, uh, then Senator Obama. Um, it's just a different model. But I think what he's saying is, look, look at my life story. That's a great American story, and look at my message which is that I am best positioned to uh, lead the country on existential issues like climate change and on urgent, what, what many progressives feel is an urgent national issue, gun control. He's not really trying to run as the centrist candidate. Uh, Senator Warren, Senator Sanders, they're too liberal. He does believe that, but that's not really what he's saying. What he's saying is I can unite this party around victory, uh, and I've got issues that uh, will resonate um, in a very broad way. I'm not going to ask you for a prediction, but I am going to ask you, does he have a path to the nomination, a realistic path? You ask him, my uh, license to predict has been revoked after 2016. We'll see if I, can I think for path. many of us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he does have a path. There's no individual assumption in his strategy. You say, well, that's just crazy. That would never happen. Uh, I think they are individual. Those individual assumptions make sense. Where this becomes, in my judgment, a low probability endeavor is that uh, so many of those assumptions have to come true. Uh, so if it's something that's a one out of four chance of coming true, you say, well, that's not bad. That's 25 percent. But if you've got uh, you know, three or four different assumptions that are each a, a one out of four, then you see the odds have become much lower. So who's advising him? Who's his brain trust? Uh, people around uh, uh, Mayor Bloomberg are familiar uh, characters to a lot of uh, Washington reporters. Howard Wolfson, 
Remember, he was the uh, uh, executive director of the DCCC on Capitol Hill. He worked uh, for then-Senator Clinton in the 2008 campaign. Uh, he's been with uh, Mayor Bloomberg in recent years for the, the past uh, uh, seven, eight years uh, or so. A very familiar uh, figure. Uh, somebody who's been with Mayor Bloomberg for years and years, but is, is well-known as a political operative, uh, Kevin Sheeke. Uh, and then people who don't necessarily cut a high profile, but they are well-known inside the, the trade uh, of Washington. People like uh, uh, Bill Knapp, who's a longtime ad maker, uh, runs uh, SDK Knickerbocker here in Washington. Uh, Doug Schoen, a name from the Clinton years, right? He was Mark Penn's partner. So these are our experienced political operatives uh, who are all getting paid rather well in this campaign. Uh, and uh, they don't... Uh, as I hear them, don't overplay their hand. They don't say, oh, "Look, this is a lock." They would acknowledge, "Look, this is a, this is a, a, a speculative uh, process that we've begun. It depends on this year being different uh, than other uh, presidential election cycles. But if we're right, and in this disruptive era of politics, this is a different year. We've got a path, and it makes sense." John Harris, one side note on another candidate who is now no longer in the race, because when she announced back in January in Oakland, California, more than 20,000 people in attendance for Senator Kamala Harris. We covered it live on C-SPAN and even President Trump praising her with the rollout of her campaign. What happened? This is a hard business. You know, you and I have been at this for a while. We've seen uh, uh, uh We've seen winning campaigns. We've seen far many uh, more uh, uh, losing campaigns. Um, it takes uh, uh, a real message. I don't think uh, as a sort of personally uh, a charismatic a presence uh, that Senator Harris is when she's at her best uh, that she ever communicated a larger story about what she, uh, uh, why she wanted to be president or, or uh, created a movement based around uh, an idea. Or, uh, and galvanized around a life story that, that gave uh, sort of credibility and life uh, to that idea. I think that's what winning campaigns do. They create movements. She didn't create a movement. And then I would say it takes a certain amount of, uh, certain amount of luck. Uh, uh, there's a certain amount of randomness uh, to this. Uh, mayor Pete's a, uh, uh, been, a, been a mayor, and he was a Rhodes Scholar. Senator Booker saying, wait a minute, I was a mayor of a much bigger city. Uh, I was also a Rhodes Scholar. How come things are clicking for him in this election year and they're not for, for Senator Booker? I mean, we might have different reasons as why we think that's true, but there's an essential kind of randomness to it. And you mentioned message. I'm often reminded of that famous Roger Mudd question to then-Senator Ted Kennedy in November of 1979, why do you want to be president? And so why does Michael Bloomberg want to be president? It can't just be to defeat Donald Trump. It has to be a message of what he wants to do, correct? I think that's right, although I think he would also say that at this moment in history, it's critically important uh, to defeat uh, President Trump, who the mayor and his team would say is a, is a threat to American values. Um, uh, th- that's what he believes. Um, but I think you're quite right that uh, a winning campaign can't just be about uh, – who you're going to beat or what you're not. Uh, it's got to be about what you're for. Um, these early ads that we've seen don't emphasize that to a great extent. They more uh, address biography. I think the substance of uh, uh, Mayor Bloomberg's ideas uh, would be around climate change, 
or he's been a, a, a passionate voice. This isn't just an election year thing. It's been an issue that he's embraced over the years. And uh, looking broadly at his record of New York as mayor of New York and saying that uh, uh, some policy achievements there uh, on taxes, on guns, uh, on economic growth, uh, that those give him credibility to achieve those things nationally. So let me conclude where your piece began, and, and you've touched on this at great length, but uh, as you write, that his assumptions for victory are not implausible. It would just take them coming true for all of this to work. What else will you be looking at in the coming weeks? I'll be looking at um, uh, national polls. Uh, typically at this point we're saying, well, you know, don't pay attention to national polls because what we're looking at is polls in Iowa and New Hampshire. Uh, I think in this case we do want to look at national polls because it will uh, give us a sign as to whether all that money that he's spending uh, in the Super Tuesday states and in other states uh, that will don't vote until March, whether or not there, there's any receptivity to that message. We both love politics. This is going to be one heck of a year, won't it? Uh, let's get some popcorn and, uh, <laughs> uh, and watch the show and then get out there on the road and, and see these guys in person, too. John Harris with The Washington Post and now the founding editor of Politico, his essay available at politico.com. Thanks for stopping by the C-SPAN Radio studios. I enjoyed it. Thank you, Steve. And a reminder, this podcast is available on the free C-SPAN Radio app or wherever you download your favorite podcast. We thank you for listening.